Come on in, sit back and relax. You're listening to episode 171 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. And I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, the founder of Ezra Group Consulting. The content of this podcast is designed to share thought-provoking industry analysis, best practices, in-depth discussions, and lively conversations all around wealth management technology. This is the last episode of the year, so it must be our best of episode. We ran the numbers to find the top 10 most downloaded podcasts from this year, and we're thankful for all of you spending so much time listening. That includes everyone around the world, as we have people downloading from over a dozen countries, such as Canada, India, the United Kingdom, Germany, Ireland, Australia, and Hong Kong, Singapore. Our crack podcast team has pulled a clip from each episode of the top 10, and I recorded a short intro to each for you. And if you enjoy these clips, I'd recommend going back and listening to the full episodes because there's a ton of terrific content there. If you are an executive at an enterprise wealth management firm and you're having issues with one of your software platforms, then you need to call Ezra Group. Our consulting team has decades of experience with all aspects of wealth management technology, data, and operations. Whether you're looking to optimize an existing system, revamp it, integrate it, or replace it entirely, Ezra Group is the first call you should make. We help firms exactly like yours make the right decisions regarding their technology for smooth front-to-back office operations. Go to EzraGroupLLC.com for more information. I'm going to squeeze in a quick housekeeping note before we start. Be sure to subscribe to Wealth Tech Today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. And the outlets where this podcast is being distributed has grown over the years and now includes not just Apple Podcasts, but also Amazon Music, Audible.com, and Spotify. And now, let's kick this thing off. Our first clip is from episode 138, Orion Advisor Buys Redtail Technology, that we recorded in April. My special guest was my good friend and colleague, Kristen Schmidt, founder of technology consulting firm RIA Oasis. In this clip, Kristen and I discuss why it's so difficult for advisors to change their software and what this acquisition means for competitors, both in the portfolio management and CRM spaces. If we were to look at other platforms out there, although it's not apples to apples, nothing is, let's look at Tamarack and Investnet, for example. The Tamarack platform for independent RAs, um, they don't have a risk tool. So they're missing that, but they have their own proprietary CRM built on the Microsoft Dynamics platform, right? And have forever uh, when Investnet bought Tamarack years ago. So um, the Orion platform having CRM portfolio management, which includes reconciliation, performance reporting and billing, a trading and rebalancing tool, a client experience, financial planning, and not only risk assessment, but you're right, prop gen, um, along with other pieces of Orion because of those other acquisitions like TAMP, it's big. They've covered all of their bases with this acquisition. And I think we also need to talk a little bit about Redtail in a sense of you know, congratulations both to Eric Clark and to uh, Brian over at Redtail because they both built amazing companies that have a lot of the same synergies. One of the biggest integrations is Redtail and Orion from the beginning, and they've been doing it from the beginning. And in Brian's, you know, 19 year career of having Redtail, he's built an entire industry level CRM. I think the numbers spoke for themselves, right? When we were looking at some recent surveys, Craig. And so mm-hmm. there's, yeah, Redtail yeah. is very well highly adopted. And we see that in the IBD space and the independent broker dealer space, as well as in the RA marketplace. And so uh, the idea that Redtail is a, has a long longevity of client success, um, user success and innovation. This is a great ad for Orion. I'm happy for everybody. It really puts uh, Red, it puts Orion in, in play for a lot of clients they may not have had before. And also it kind of changes the marketplace. As you mentioned, Tamarack has had a CRM for many years, but it wasn't highly adopted. Whereas this move might change the nature of how RIA platforms operate. Whereas if Orion can be successful integrating Redtail to become Orion CRM, if they rebrand it as Orion CRM, which makes sense. Yeah. The integration is really tight and seamless and feels good to advisors. And the, and the adoption rate keeps increasing rather than decreasing. It could 
change how their competitors look at them and say, well, hey, they're doing this. Um, we need to do the same. I agree. But I also think that if I were an advisor today who has heavily adopted Redtail but uses Black Diamond or uses some other portfolio management tool, um, I would wonder where this leaves me. I also think that Wealthbox is in a very strong position, although this is an acquisition and it's very positive, happy for everybody. My agnostic sense comes out. But Wealthbox, in my opinion, is literally the only CRM out there that is independently owned and operated without any, you know, with, with the intention of being a CRM only, right? And mm -hmm. there can be an opinion here, and I'll hear it from all of my clients, which is, well, Redtail, now you're not a CRM. Now you're part of a bigger platform. So what about us? What about those CRM initiatives? I think I could speak on both sides of that coin, one being Redtail has such a large company and people and support behind it and all of that is coming with the company. So um, I think that that's good for Orion where it can still stand alone, although it's under the umbrella. But to that point, um, it does take away advisor choice at some level. We, you and I keep talking about how advisors want choice. And now you can make that choice. At least we're not sure, actually, if you're going to be able to buy Redtail after close, uh, what second quarter. We're not sure if you'll be able to be, buy Redtail independently. That hasn't been released. Again, we're an hour into the release, but it hasn't been said yet. The, the way advisors do wealth management, the way advisors do portfolio management can be, can be very different. And the way, the way they feel about it often decides which platform they go with when they, when they're, you know, Tamarack does portfolio rebalancing and management in a very different way than Orion's Eclipse does, which is a very different way than Black Diamond's rebalancer. So they, it's, it's sometimes even though you, you're there, you just can't get them to switch because you don't do things the way they do things, they don't want to change. That's exactly right. And I also think that there are some firms who choose to have a Maserati of a portfolio management platform and more of a Volvo in a sense of a CRM. And then there's other firms who choose to have the Maserati as the CRM. It's a sales force, it's something much larger and then maybe not have much of a gusto of the portfolio management system. But I'll tell you this, the portfolio management systems in all of these platforms are very well defined by, are you financial planning centric or are you investment centric? And a lot of that is driving platform decision. What does my financial planning tool look like? What do my outputs look like? You're an icon and influencer on Twitter. You've seen it all. One page reports and everybody's talking about what's being released. Um, you know, I, I, I do have to mention since we're live when this in, info just came out that Altruist and their integration with Right Capital got buried in this and they should get a lot of credit. In a right sense. Capital. <laughs> yeah, like and, and poor Jason, like right, uh, over at Altruist, because I think that was a great integration and one of the first over there that's really impactful on the financial planning side for Altruist. So with that said, um, I think that there are a lot of these pieces and the unknowns can be impactful. A CRM, you need one no matter what to run your business, no matter if you're investment centric, financial planning centric or mix. So is this going to drive higher adoption of the CRM? Absolutely. Absolutely, it will. Um, and it's going to make some of the competitors probably wonder what's next, right? Um, again, just to lay it out, Orion now has bought Redtail. Franklin Templeton owns Advisor Engine, aka what used to be Juncture CRM. Um, SSNC uh, Advent, which also is... Uh, Black Diamond is underneath them, owns the Celentica platform for CRM, which has a Microsoft Dynamics platform and a Salesforce platform. Wealthbox, um, owned by uh, Star Labs, which I think, uh, Starburst Labs, excuse me, but I think that, uh, you know, they just got some amazing influx of um, money to innovate, which I think is going to be impactful to see how they become, you know, competitive. But again, not owned by any larger <laughs> platform. And it's the only one out there besides um, any of the Salesforce overlay companies like Practify, Accelerate, um, and so on. Let's, let's do a quick rundown of market share. So according mm -hmm. to the Keatsis Advisor Tech survey, 
Redtail is the leader with 33%. Wealth blocks, uh, wealth blocks, wealth box 22.7%. Salesforce 13.3. And then I think the next one, I lost my page, sorry. Then Salesforce 13. But then the next one is other at 9%. So just just a little scary, especially for a, a CRM implementer like myself. <laughs> yeah, other. Uh, the other Juncture, categories. Juncture, which is now advisor engine CRM, is 4%. Tamarack CRM, 2.7%. Firm proprietary, 25 Microsoft Dynamics, 25 And then it just falls off the map. Yep. All right. So what does it mean for these companies? Oh, let me just switch over to a T3. T3 has some different, uh, way different numbers. They've got Redtail at 62%, almost 100% higher, which could be because they get more broker-dealer uh, enterprise respondents to their, uh, their survey. Investnet, number two at 16, Wealthbox, number three at 13, Salesforce, six, Salesforce, 11, Juncture, four, Advise on two. So what do these numbers mean? Clearly, Redtail's the leader. You know, Orion's bought the leader in CRM, and... It means a wealth, as you said, Wealthbox is the only major CRM available at that stage. Yeah, but I want to be fair on that for a little bit. So number one, if we're if we're listing adoption, and again, some of that survey which we've reviewed and and disclosed, I think does hit primarily that independent RA market isn't necessarily representing the IBD space in a large way, but that's okay. We've gotten enough data, and they're doing a great job. A couple of things to note, though. Redtail was founded in 2003, which means they're on year 19. Okay, and congratulations to Ryan McLaughlin on that. So Wealthbox, if we were to look at the historical data from your from the T3 survey or others, Wealthbox has made increasingly large jumps to get to that 23 in half the time. They're eight years behind. Wealthbox was established by Starburst Labs in 2014. So sometimes when we look at data and we also look at longevity and the, uh, the same thing's happening with Right Capital, okay? We've talked about that before where Right Capital is considered the newbie, but is the fastest growing adopted financial planning tool in the market. So I think we need to give that a little bit of credit that Wealthbox is, the climb is sometimes just as impactful as those final results. Now, to Redtail's credit, um, once you earn A, you got to keep it. Your numbers can always go down <laughs> just as much as they can go up. So everybody in, from Wealthbox and Redtail has been climbing predominantly, but I think those big step climbs from companies that are newer to the market is impactful and something to consider. There's also been areas of the CRM market where certain companies are deciding to be or not be. I'll give you an example. Email. It's a big one. Okay. Redtail currently has an outsourced solution for red for email hosting through a company named Zimbra. Will that stay? Will that go with Orion? Remember, Redtail isn't just a CRM. They are a document management system for storage. They also have their speak component, which is for texting and messaging um, and chatting. Um, they have so many other components to the CRM that Orion has a lot to unravel as to how it all fits. And I, until I see otherwise, I'm guessing it's all coming along for the ride, but how that all instrumentally fits into their platform will be interesting. Next up is a clip uh, from episode 141, The Anatomy of 401k Trading with Dave Goldman, Chief Business Officer at Pontera, formerly FIEX. This episode was published back in May. So I, I realize why this is important, but for people listening who maybe aren't don't understand. Can you explain why this functionality, this trade, being able to trade away, uh, trade hell away assets is so important to advisors? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's important to advisors because it's important to their clients. Um, and if you really think about what happens, you know, most of the country today is no longer dependent on defined benefit plans or pensions. Those have gone away. So the primary means of retirement savings are in clients, 401ks and 403bs, and defined contribution plans. Now, because these are held off platform for most advisors, um, it means that they're really not a part of the advisor's purview in helping their clients. There's a lot of studies. There's some that talk specifically about management of 401ks. There's a lot that talk about the value of an advisor. They both peg it to about 3% per year net of fees as the benefit that the advisor can provide to a client. 
when you look at that compounded over 20 years, this can be an additional 75% growth for a client up until retirement. What happens, unfortunately, is that because advisors oftentimes cannot manage these as part of a overall portfolio, um, these get defaulted. These accounts get defaulted into a fund or a number of funds when the client signs up for their 401k and doesn't get regularly reviewed and doesn't get looked at and doesn't get managed and doesn't change with the client's lifestyle and risk tolerance and existing financial situation. So they underperform the market over time. Um, and really what's important for the advisor and for the client is to make this part of the overall strategy so they can create that benefit for their client. And so their client doesn't have to worry about, you know, am I going to be okay in retirement, knowing that their trusted financial professional has been shepherding this account for them during their regular engagement. So really important for the end client to see the, the benefit of management of these accounts as part of a strategy. And of course, for advisors that are focused on serving their clients that are fiduciary uh, and that are always looking to do the right thing. That's why it's so important for them as well. It is amazing how long we've gone. I mean, this is not a new number of these, this, you know, 401ks we have it being the, the primary means of retirement savings with a large chunk of uh, investors savings stored away in these plans. And we really had no way to interact with them except manually where the advisor looks at them and goes, okay, well, I don't like this holding, change it. The, he's got to trust the client to go log in, find the way to do that and do the, the rebalancing themselves. Yeah, we actually see um, advisors taking two approaches on these accounts. So that's, that's a, quite a common approach, which is if you bring me your statement, when it's convenient, you know, at the end of the year or when we get together next, I can take a look at it and I can give you some recommendations. And then my hope is that you're doing something about it. That's a very reactive approach from the advisor standpoint. They're trying to help, which is nice. And we can talk about some of the compliance implications on doing that as well. Um, but it's not a full service solution, right? It's, it's a reactive approach. There are other advisors, and, and we see this quite a bit, that actually one at a time will take their client's credentials and log in and trade the accounts. Now, from the advisor's perspective, um, if they're taking all of the right steps, if they're claiming custody and they're going through surprise custody audits and they're securing client credentials, this is a process that we're seeing very commonly in the industry. The client wants help with the account. They're, they're basically permissioning their advisor to do this. It becomes a very cumbersome manual process for the advisor. It brings a lot of risk to the advisor from a cybersecurity element because advisors are typically not SOC 2 certified. They typically don't have chief information security officers to kind of monitor how this works. Um, and they're not built for this. Right. So although it's it's great that they're doing this to help their clients, it creates a lot of direct liability for them. Um, and what we're finding is that outsourcing the ability to kind of conduct that entire um, the, the ability to in, to conduct the entire security audits and infosec process um, and secure trading is something that they prefer to uh, to offload to us versus figuring out and trying to do themselves. But there's policies. The SEC has um, policies and procedures in place on if you are going to take credentials and if you are going to trade these accounts, this is what you need to do. And here's how you need to um, subject yourself to surprise audits and what that looks like as well. So it's happening today at, at quite a significant scale. The next most downloaded episode of 2022 was episode 127, $1 million worth of platform consolidation advice from Kevin Adams, general partner, Head of Business Solutions Development for Edward Jones. This episode went live back in January. And here's a bit of social media trivia. Kevin and I uh, have 630 mutual connections on LinkedIn. That's a lot of overlap. And in this clip, Kevin is sharing tips for evaluating enterprise software vendors. I really love to hear from broker dealers, RA aggregators, TAMPs, RAs, about how they pick vendors and what their their methodology is and, and where they feel the their strengths the weaknesses are so give it a listen now one thing i know you're good at and i've seen you do this um when you when you're judging at conferences judging uh demos you're very good at seeing behind the curtain or at least kind of peeking behind the curtain if you can because the demos always look good right that's they're only showing the best of the best and they're only showing the stuff that works so what's the, what advice can you give to uh, other firms that are getting demos 
how can they kind of peel the onion a bit and, and see, is it really working the way they're telling me it's working? Or is there something behind the scenes that's, that's not working right? Once you get past the demos, you have to go through, take some of your use cases, take some test data, take some dummy data from your firm, and you actually have to run it through their system and, and run it through the process. It, it, it may not be the, the identical real world use case that you know, you, you'd have your advisors using, but it needs to be close to it. So that's one, actually testing the system out. Two, talk to other clients. Have, have a deep discussion with clients that have been on the system, been using it for a while, listen to you know, the successes, listen to the opportunities, listen to the, the challenges they've dealt with in the, in the platform. I think those two I've, I've seen skipped by firms time and time again, um, but they, they just pay off in, in the longer term before a decision of, of you know, purchasing something without really trying to put it through some semblance of paces or learning around how it's performed or how it's worked with a competitor. So true. We, we often refer to that as user acceptance testing, that you need to build out that test plan. And run, even though the vendor tells you it's going to work, you can't trust them because this is your business. And you need to, as you said, run the data through, even if it's just a sample, to make sure that it works the way they say. And also define what it means to accept that. And how do you, what's your exit criteria? It's got to do this, this, and this, and here are the things we expect. Have you seen any, any issues around that where you're doing your UAT and you know, it's not working well? And how do you work with the vendor to, to get that resolved? Of course, I've seen that. I and know you've seen I it. Think of, I asked that question. <laughs> I, 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 I think of, I'm, I'm going to go away from the functional side for a minute. And an area that a lot of people don't always talk about or, or maybe think about in, in advance coming to close into UAT is, is really the non-functional side. Performance calculations, performance of the system, uptime, responsiveness. So when going through that, that final stage you talk about of, of, of UAT, that's really around the functionality of the system but the non-functional side has is is often either forgotten or not paid as much of attention to. And in this day and age, when you need you know quadruple nine uptime for these these systems because you know millions billions of dollars are are flowing through them, that scalability, reliability, robustness of these vendor commercial most of the time you know SaaS cloud-based hosted solutions really needs to be tested thoroughly. Yes, the non-functional requirements are often overlooked to, to the expense of the functional requirements because the functionals are in front of your face. It's easier to see those than the non-functional. Yeah. The, so with, when we're talking about interoperability back to integration, when you're doing platform consolidation, you often have a choice uh, sometimes it is a choice or, you know, of a vendor, which one you're picking. Sometimes it isn't. If you're acquiring another firm, oftentimes the acquired firm's software gets, gets, gets nixed. But if you have a choice and, and you're, you're, you're picking and choosing, how do you define which applications get integrated, which applications get replaced? That's going to vary so much depending on, on, on the, the business itself. I think, and I'll take the, the last piece, which applications get replaced. Some of that starts with the, the overall just architecture of the application. Is it, is it legacy? You know, does it run on, on a modern stack? Is it something that maybe not as cloud-based today? Is it going to be easy to, to move it into the cloud? Is it secure? Is it, is it performant? Um, and, and those will help you make that decision if, you, if you're talking about, you know, acquiring another firm where you're inheriting a, a, a technology stack, you could spend a lot of time trying to modernize a platform and you have to balance that versus saying, you know, we're going to replicate this functionality into something new. That something new could be an internal custom build. That something new could be a, a, another vendor solution. So I think that's a really important piece of it. And I wouldn't 
call that functional or, or non-functional, but really just the, the underlying architecture stack, how modern is the platform itself from a technology perspective. So when we're talking about the, um, the platform consolidation projects and how to support them uh, and make them more, give, you, give yourself a higher probability of success. One thing you mentioned is, a, is the data, data models and the data architecture. So how can, can you go in a little bit more detail on how a well-designed data architecture supports platform consolidation projects? I believe it starts with understanding, and I, I touched on this earlier, what is the data? Where did it come from? How is it being used? So really the authoritative source of it making sure that it's curated well, it's managed well, you're not making multiple copies of it. Other systems are now using it, writing to it. We're not really sure where the authoritative source came from. You know, was it derived data? So hence understanding the depth of the, the calculation and why that calculation was used and, and the output. It's not just about the data and the systems, or how they're being used, but the, the audit mechanism of understanding if something went wrong or there was a question about a, a calculation or a trade within the system, being able to understand that whole lineage of, of the data to be able to recreate that scenario to either validate what happened was, was actually right or try to understand what went wrong. That goes back to your earlier comment about a common vocabulary, which is also, uh, I think, can be described as a data dictionary, and be able to build that data dictionary so you know which, which data is coming from the source, which data is derived, which data is calculated, and without that, that changes over time. You have these slowly changing dimensions over years or more, where the data slowly morphs. Not nothing big, nothing major, where it's enough to to get people concerned, but slowly morphing over time. And you wind up with a completely different data set than you had when you started out seven or 10 years ago. True. So with the, so the common vocabulary also helps with data cleanliness. Can you talk a little about um, specifically when, when, you're, when you're consolidating multiple platforms that why is data cleanliness important? I think I touched on it in, in the last answer, but that cleanliness is important you're, you're managing money, you're rebalancing a portfolio, you're placing a trade, you're you know, understanding performance of, uh, of, of an account or a portfolio or a specific security. That data is everything that's gonna define why you're doing something or, or, or how you're doing something and, and making sure you're, you're doing it right. So hence why all large enterprises, the last five, 10 years have taken data so seriously with data strategies, data architects, beeping up their data engineering, data stewards. It's, it's, it's become such an important factor in, in financial services and, and albeit investment banking, capital markets, the sell side, buy side, asset management, wealth management, Data is, is, is one of the data and understanding the cleanliness is, is one of the most important things that we have to focus on as a, a firm or in, in, in my role as a technologist. So we're running out of time. I want to squeeze in one more question. When you're consolidating platforms, and we mentioned earlier about replacing platforms or integrating platforms, and sometimes you don't have a choice and sometimes you do, if you're integrating multiple vendors, What's some advice you can give uh, firms about that process and how to make it a smooth uh, offering so that in the end, your interfaces and you're getting a best of breed, but you're not suffering from the, the consequences of, of having different vendors all fighting to, to get uh, things done? Yeah, I think, and I'll, I'll start with the, the large commercial managed account or advisory vendors. They need to partner with other firms that may be competitors, so some co-opetition to provide a more robust offering end-to-end -end for wealth managers 
and we talked about this via those well-defined interfaces for best of breed components. And the example I would use is you could have vendor ABC, which may have a, a robust tax optimization ender engine vendor EFG might be best in class from portfolio construction capabilities. They need to work together on their APIs, on the data integration of the product. So I think about wealth managers could go out there and pick and choose from the imaginary managed account app store, so to speak, to implement the best platform that meets their advisors and clients' needs. And that's really talking about that hybrid-based solution where it might not be build it all yourself. It might not be just buy one solution and try to force it into your needs. So doing a lot of customization, it's really picking and choosing the best solution and being able to work together. And then from an experience perspective, not just the systems communicating or the underlying data, but that the experience is fairly cohesive for the advisor that's using the system. Our next clip comes from episode 134, Healthy Client Data Infrastructure with Don McHenry, Senior Product Manager at Morningstar by all accounts, which went live in March. I asked Don about comparing data aggregation vendors. Uh, and as I mentioned in the clip, it's hard to compare them. You know, we, do, we do a lot of research at Ezra Group and it's different. We, we compare every different type of software that advisors use. And data aggregation is what is a highly used application uh, service, but it's difficult to compare them and know who is better or worse. It's very opaque. So that's my question to Don. I'm going to take a listen right now. One thing that I found is difficult when it comes to data aggregation vendors is comparing them. Very difficult to look at the output because you just, it's not like there's a report. I can just run the show me which one's better. It's you know, something you have to run over time looking at hundreds or, or more of different data sources um, under different conditions, different times of the year, times of the month. So what have you found when you're comparing yourself by all accounts to other vendors? What were your strengths and weaknesses? Sure. I mean, kind of like I was mentioning before, you know, in general, like when selecting a vendor, you want to understand, you know, what market is that aggregator committed to? Um, what use cases are they enriching the data for? You know, is it for payments? Is it for credit decisioning? Is it for investment purposes? Is it for spending? Um, do they cover the right sources for you? So those are all really important uh, questions to ask when when selecting a vendor. Um, you know, one of the other things that really helps sets, uh, set by all accounts apart, of course, is the, um, the fact that we are a Morningstar product, right? So really, the aggregation and engagement solutions that we can deliver with use of the Morningstar ecosystem is really greater than some of its parts. So we have the ability to collaborate across teams um, within Morningstar that serve a whole cross section of the financial services industry. So products that serve the investor, products that serve the enterprise, products that serve the advisor. Um, and we have a lot of great internal partners that uh, use our aggregation service in these products. So we can actually see you know, how our data is being used, what works, what doesn't work, where do we need to invest and make enhancements. Um, so again, from our perspective, we're really committed to the investor, the advisor, and the platforms that support them. Um, you know, we certainly have, have great external partners as well where we can get this feedback, but it's, it's a big benefit to have this in-house. Um, and also, you know, as part of the, the Morningstar ecosystem, there's all sorts of great tools and data available to help us really create a, a flywheel effect with our products. So, um, you know, certainly we have customers that um, use our aggregation and other Morningstar services and, and kind of integrate those together themselves. Um, and one of the things that, that we're investing in, you know, uh, now and, and in the near future is kind of delivering even more turnkey uh, um, aggregation solutions that involve other Morningstar data and other Morningstar analysis capabilities to provide really a level of depth that um, differentiates us amongst the other aggregators. And back to differentiation, that's what it's about. Can you talk about, let's talk about something fun. So let's talk about the buzz we're, we're hearing. What is going on? This, there's so much talk about um, acquisitions and more mergers. You know, we have, of course, we have the Plaid um, attempted uh, acquisition. Other, what, what are you hearing around the buzz in the industry? Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. There's there's quite a lot of buzz. I think um, you know the uh, you mentioned the Platt attempted acquisition. I think at the time the valuation was was five billion, which was quite a, a, a surprise for for many. And I think their valuation has even increased you know many fold since then. Um, so really, a lot of uh, um, of this buzz is is attributed to kind of two uh, main areas: so competitive pressures and advancements in technology. So. From the competitive perspective, fintechs are really accelerating digital transformation for um, older wealth management enterprises. So what I mean by that is that you know customers can really use free services to see a 360-degree view of their financial lives. They expect this now with their advisor, their money manager to have these same capabilities, because if they don't, someone else will, right? So when an advisor uses aggregation to gain access to, to all of their customers' data, that really makes a highly compelling and, and customized and personalized experience that they can deliver. Um, and then on the kind of advancements in, in technology side, so you know, aggregation is no longer really just about um, an overview of accounts, right? It's how is that data being enriched and how is it made actionable for, for use within the enterprise? You know, everything from simple net worth delivery to end users to suitability, business intelligence, you know, customer engagement and marketing. Um, and you know, now with with open banking, customers, you know, or consumers' data is, is portable, right? So it belongs to them. They they can share this between apps, and and as an aggregator, now we are at the intersection of all this, right? We're the intermediaries, intermediaries that bring all this data together between stakeholders, um, and and we grow with the, the ecosystem. There were reports a while back. Uh, banks shutting off access to third-party data aggregators or scraping, screen scraping their websites, and they didn't like that. Is that still happening? And if so, how are you dealing with it? I imagine the open banking APIs link into that somehow. Yeah, certainly. So you know, um, we've engaged. Uh, like I said, we're we're live now with open banking APIs with with a number of institutions, um, and we're engaged uh, in building uh, um, connections with others. And you know, part of the uh, the, the deal here is that you know we're we're getting off the website. We're not aggregated from the website any longer when the open banking APIs are available. So there's certainly you know quite a bit of um, operational you know internal migrations that need to happen and collaboration with our customers to make that work. Um, but you know typically uh, um, institutions are are giving us a deadline, right? Okay, here's access to our open banking APIs. Great, uh, we have a, a direct relationship with you, and and now it's time to to move to that channel. And um, you know we will. Uh, essentially block the, the website connection, um, you know, at this date, right? So we're definitely seeing that and we're working together with the financial institutions and abiding by their, um, by their needs for that. And then there's also kind of the, uh, the more kind of rogue situations that you'll see where they'll impl implement certain technologies that just simply block, you know, aggregation altogether um, or make it very difficult to uh, aggregate accounts and, and kind of erode the, the user experience. Um, in those cases, you know, there's there's two things we can do. One is um, we, you know, attempt to make our technology as adaptable as possible and have the best, you know, messaging to our user about um, connecting accounts and setting up accounts. And then the other option, of course, which is always, uh, you know, what we attempt to do is is connect connect with the institution, um, establish a relationship with them, and discover alternative means for collecting data. Cool. Very cool. So one other thing that we are seeing on our end is the concept of aggregator of aggregators. It seems like it's gaining momentum at some firms, especially larger firms, larger broker dealers that can afford to build out their own technology or other vendors that are building tools to connect to multiple uh, APIs or multiple um, aggregators. Uh, are you seeing that as well? And how do you see that changing the way aggregation is used? Yeah, you know, certainly, um, you know, I think the, the the biggest thing to keep in mind for that is that, you know, it's really important for the aggregator to own the whole aggregation experience. Um, ultimately, it's about delivering a, a compelling user experience, keeping the client engaged, mm -hmm. and by owning the whole from the connection to the enrichment to the delivery of the data, you're, you're providing more value than, than someone that doesn't provide that service uh, can you know, there, there are certainly some advantages of aggregator of aggregators in terms of being able to kind of point and shoot at different institutions. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it, it's, it's not them that has control over the, the technology, the connections and, um, you know, being uh, owning that yourself is, is, is a, uh, a major um, benefit. 
can you share some of your product roadmap? What's what's coming down the pike for uh, file accounts users? What, what do you have to look forward to? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we're really focused on on three areas. Uh, those those three areas are investor engagement, um, advisor ROI, and workflow automation. So from an investor engagement perspective, you know, I mentioned this ecosystem of Morningstar capabilities we have, uh, and our data is really plug and play into this ecosystem. Um, one of the things I failed to mention earlier when I was talking about our enrichment is um, not only will we, you know, map uh, all positions that we aggregate to their accurate ticker and QSIP, we actually also map them to the internal Morningstar ID. And that really unlocks a lot for our customers. We have many customers that are also Morningstar data customers, and they can really easily correlate the aggregated data with the Morningstar data. Um, so we're now uh, you know, taking the initiative to, to make some of these services a little more turnkey for our customers. Um, you know, Adding things like, if you think about a, a customer aggregating their portfolio through our, our services, hey, we can add the portfolio risk score, we can add the, the excuse me, sustainability rating. Um, you know, and this is, this is great because investment behavior really has changed for younger investors. So if you're trying to go more, more downstream with your users or, or, or reach a larger audience, you know, um, they're looking for more editorial content. They're, they want to make sure that their portfolio you know, aligns with their risk and their values, you know, understanding the, the holding and, and, and sector kind of exposure that their portfolio has. And these are all things we can really deliver off the shelf with, um, with all these great Morningstar capabilities we have. So certainly investing more in that in the realm of investor engagement. Um, also in that realm, uh, financial wellness tools. So um, high level kind of view of financial health health married with, um, with guidance. So we have a great uh, team here of behavioral scientists that are really helping us innovate and drive um, and uh, these tools and bring them to market. So they're less focused on, on being in the, the budgeting weeds and take more of a, a holistic approach at financial wellness. So what I mean by that is, you know, how much income are you allocating towards debt versus day-to-day consumption versus, um, you know, the future? And is that balanced according to your goals and, you know, maybe our recommendations? Um, you know, how is your savings from a short-term and, and long-term solvency perspective? So are you prepared for an emergency event, uh, you know, losing your job? How close are you to financial freedom if you're, you know, more uh, an older individual closer to retirement? Um, so those are uh, really exciting um, financial wellness tools. And then also on the investor engagement side, you know, we're, we're committed to delivering, you know, the broadest set of, of data connections for investors and advisors. So, um, you know, that means uh, connecting to new asset classes, right? So cryptocurrency is, is something that is in high demand, right? So we have customers that, that need access to these sources because their clients have this data, or in some cases, there's turnkey asset management platforms that advisors are beginning to use. So we've engaged in relationships with them to deliver direct feeds to provide that data downstream to, to platforms. Um, on the advisor ROI side, so really trying to highlight the interoperability of our data. So not, not only can we serve the portfolio accounting use cases, but we can also really deliver advisor and investor alerts and insights uh, from our data. So some examples might be, you know, hey, there's idle cash uh, in this investor's you know, portfolio. Let's, let's open an account. I can engage with that investor and open an account. Their you know, risk exceeds the risk profile. That's a, a discussion for diversification. Um, they've changed their job or their income has changed. Hey, let's update your, your savings and contributions. And, you know, these types of insights and, and alerts can really help, you know, give the advisor more time to, to offer their client trusted, personalized advice in, in a way that a robo is unable to do. So um, the, uh, the third was the workflow automation and onboarding. So in, investing in some uh, tools and capabilities there to help enterprises, you know, facilitate asset transfers and onboard clients um, uh, quicker and, uh, and um, you know, excited about that as well. Our next clip comes from episode 154, Embracing External Trends in the TAMP Space with Daniel Needham, Global Chief Investment Officer at Morningstar that was published in August. I asked Daniel for the background behind their decision to switch out the underlying technology that was running their TAMP. And they replaced it with a company called SmartX, and the, the other vendor they used for over ten years. So uh, it's a very difficult decision to make, and there's a lot that goes into that decision to swap out the you know, the core technology that's running uh, your TAMP or really any system in a wealth management uh, uh, company. So uh, really good information here from Daniel. Take a listen. 
So recently you announced you're switching your backend technology uh, to a new provider. Can you talk about that and what were the primary factors in that decision? Yeah, I, I think, as I mentioned, you know, we've had a, a you know, a platform for, for quite some time, our TAM for some time. And, you know, we've seen the, the needs of advisors evolve and, um, and the ability to deliver flexibility and choice, we think is, is more important than ever. And, you know, we've had great partnerships um, supporting the TAMP and, but, but we felt from a technolo- technology perspective, we needed to enhance the underlying chassis of the platform, especially from a UMA perspective. We have multi-strategy accounts or UMAs now, but, but we really felt like we needed to partner with a, you know, a, an API sort of technology first provider. Uh, and we have Morningstar Office, which is a portfolio accounting engine as well. So we, we've got some backend capabilities that we were really leveraging a third party for. So, so we've made the decision to, to overhaul the uh, the the middle and back office of um, the TAMP, and so you know, we're we're using Office as our sole portfolio accounting and performance calculation engine, uh, and we're working with SmartX uh, to to be our uh, UMA and uh, middle office uh, uh, provider. So working with them, you know, API based uh, connections, um, they'll be powering our our UMA, our model manager, our rebalancer. And so really excited, you know, uh, Evan Rappaport and John Pincus, you know, just great, great partners. I think they're, you know, they're, they're really focused on innovating, leading with technology, you know, disrupting maybe the market a little. And, um, and, you know, look with Aaron and, and, um, and Alex as well, they're head of tech and head of product, you know, they're just a great team to work with. So like-minded organizations, and we just couldn't be happier with the partnership. Yeah. We've been talking about SmartX for a while, long before they kind of, they kind of popped up on the radar where everyone else in 2020 or 2021, when they started grabbing a lot of assets. But for years, no one was really talking about them except me because I'd, I'd seen what they were doing and I like their technology. And we're experts in UMA and managed accounts. So when I see a vendor with a new take on UMA and sort of really, as you said, technology first provider, I want to talk about it. So we've been talking about SmartX. So we're really happy you guys are working with them. Uh, and we don't have any relationship with SmartX and at all, in terms of a monetary relationship, but we're just happy to see vendors that we like work together and, and doing cool stuff. Yeah, we're, we're really... Um... We're excited about it, and you know, we think the collective strengths of the organisations. Like we've really come together. That's the great approach with their API first approach is that you can really build something that's right for your workflow. And and you know we're going to be bringing some some really cool features and, and functionality out. And uh, you know I think the uh, yeah the SmartX guys are the uh, they're, they're a a ten year overnight success. <laughs> They've been building that tech for for some time, and it's super mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah, and it came from other tech, right? They started out in the hedge fund world, which is a very, it's very, it's a lot more pressure, right? You're, when you're in the hedge fund, things are changing. Of course, wealth management is, is pressure as well. You got to be right and correct. You can't have bad data or inaccurate, but hedge fund is at a different level of, you know, so I think coming from that tech background, that, that client segment gave them a good base for moving into wealth management. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And we, we see that in their ability to, you know, calculate performance real time. And, you know, it's it, it's precision that you need, I think. And, and that's the way the, the industry is going. And I think they're leading it. Uh, indeed. And so uh, well, I'd like to kind of dig a little bit more into how you make this decision, because we work with a lot of firms like Morningstar on, on the tech side. We work with a lot of your clients, broker dealers, enterprise RIAs. And it's often uh, an issue for, for, uh, for CXOs, presidents of companies like yourself. When do you switch? How do you know that it's time to switch? So what was, so you mentioned UMA need, you mentioned APIs, but how did you know that, hey, now's the time we have to switch? What was your your, your, your decision point? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that there's a, a an easy answer to that question. You know, I think strategically we, we could just see the, the the way the industry was going and and we could see that, um, that with advisors' expectations aren't declining, I would say. So, you know, advisors, you know, they're humans. They spend a lot of time in modern apps and and uh, using different sort of digital applications. And, and, you know, I think when they move into the sort of, um, you know, the finance tech space, they don't change their expectations. They just get disappointed. <laughs> and, so, um, and so, you know, we could see that. And, and, um, and so for us, it really, we really felt like we needed to improve the digital experience for advisors. And, and that was the key. We could do, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about, you know, um, you know, embracing external trends and that generally if you, you know, if you, if it's a strong external trend, 
um, and you don't embrace it, you're probably going to be left behind. And, you know, for us, we could see that. And, um, and so that was really the catalyst. We needed to improve the, the, the experience, the workflows on our platform. And, and look, we looked at all of the major providers. We went through a comprehensive due diligence and evaluation process. And, you know, we signed, you know, confidentiality agreements with all the vendors and, and they were great. And, and, you know, we were very, this was a bona fide search. We wanted to look for the best partner. And, you know, there's a look, there's a lot of great providers out there, I would say. So it was not an easy decision, but but we felt on balance. SmartX were good because we liked where they were in their in their business life cycle. They're still in that sort of innovator, you know, um, sort of pilot it, nail it stage. And, um, and, and that's great because, you know, we want to build something that's really well suited to our advisors and our clients. And we want to innovate together. You know, I think when firms get really large, you know, they turn into large professional services firms that have, you know, cookie cutter playbooks and so and and you know we felt like smartx wasn't that and so um but uh yeah it was a, it was a comprehensive process it's it's a risky you know moving you know back end and, and middle office it's risky it's a lot of work but we got a great team and we've got some experience doing some pretty complex projects um uh of this kind of nature and so and and so i, I feel really confident we're, we're really on track things are going well and um our goal is to just make sure there's no disruption for our for our advisors and their clients, and, and we feel good about that. Yeah, we've seen that as well, working with a lot of different vendors from large to small, that success breeds um, lack of innovation, right? You tend to innovate less as you get larger. And once you, in order to, to get that level of success, you have to become a legacy provider. It, it, takes, it takes a number of years to do that. And now your technology becomes old, you're, you become beholden to your biggest clients, the legacy clients, and they start to drive your roadmap rather than innovative ideas driving your roadmap. Yeah, that's right. You know, the engineers that are closest to the, the pain point or the problem, you know, that's where the innovation comes from, you know, solving real problems. But, you know, once they get to a certain scale, you know, the engineers move out and the MBAs move in and, <laughs> and, uh, and then it's about, you know, scaling, scaling and turning into a software product. So. And that's a wrap. You made it to the end of the end of the episodes of 2022. Thank you for listening. Um, before I go, please go to EzraGroupLLC.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email chock full of wealth management goodness, news, updates, tasks, all kinds of things. You will not be disappointed. Thanks for listening. See you all again next year. Bye.